Ladies and gentlemen, warning, spoilers ahead. You get along with your parents? Well, if I say yes, I'm an idiot, right? You're an idiot anyway. But if you say you get along with your parents, well, you're a liar too. You know something, man? If we weren't in school right now, I'd waste you. Hey, fellas, I mean... I don't, I don't like my parents either. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get along with them. I mean, their, their idea of, you know, parental compassion is just, you know, wacko, you know? Dora. Yeah. You are a parent's wet dream, okay? Well, that's the problem. Look, I could see you getting all bunged up for them making you wear these kind of clothes. But face it, you're a neo-maxi-zoom dweeby. Why do you have to insult everybody? I'm being honest, asshole. I would expect you to know the difference. Yeah, well, he's got a name. Yeah? Yeah. What's your name? Brian. See? My condolences. What's your name? What's yours? Claire. Claire? Claire. It's a family name. Oh, it's a fat girl's name. Good evening, and welcome to television. G'day. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey. Whoa. I'm Wayne Stellini. And I'm a Philip Hunting, and welcome to Fred Watch, where we view and review films, everything from the mainstream to the obscure. We absolutely do, mate. What have you been watching since our last podcast? I have been on tender hook for The Mandalorian. Who could blame you, mate? <laughs> oh, it is so good. The Mandalorian is doing for me what episodes seven, eight, and nine should have. Yeah. <laughs> Making me excited for the lore of Star Wars again. Yeah, it's such an exquisite series, isn't it? It really is, it really is. What have you been watching, Wayne? I've also been watching some TV, mate, and uh, whilst it's a series that does interest me, probably not to the extent that Mandalorian interests you, <laughs> um, I've been watching a British reality fly-on-the-wall type series called Educating. And it looks at these different schools. Each season follows a different school over the course of a year and essentially just sees how an average school year pans out. And anyone who remembers their schooling days well and anyone who works in school uh, will know that there's no such thing as an average day. So it's all the, the drama and the pressures and the tensions and the challenges that staff and students face just to make sure that these kids have an education. Beautiful. And what is today's film? Well, mate, speaking of education and the system, <laughs> today we're reviewing the Citizen Kane of teen movies, and that's John Hughes's the Breakfast Club. Please explain. On Saturday, March 24, 1984, Shermer High School students Brian, Anthony Michael Hall, Andrew, Emilio Estevez, Allison, Ali Sheedy, Claire, Molly Ringwald, and Bender, Judd Nelson, meet at 7am to serve a nine-hour detention where their strict assistant principal, Richard Vernon, Paul Gleason, instructs them to write an essay about who they think they are. At first, the group sees one another as everyone else wants to see them, 
and the rejection of the writing task appears to be the only thing they have in common. But through the course of the day, they realize they're much more than a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, or a criminal. So Philip, were you kept in by the breakfast club? <laughs> That's a really good definition. I like that. <laughs> I usually don't comment on the definition, but that one was specifically nice. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> this is probably now my second viewing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I first watched this movie far too old. I okay. Was, it would have only been a couple of years ago. Alrighty. So um, in your 20s? In my, yeah, in my late 20s, early 30s sort of thing. Right. And so I don't think I quite got out of it what everyone else who watched it in the teens did. And I say this specifically because my partner, Kirsten, showed it to me, was very excited about showing it to me. And then when I didn't have the same reaction she had, got a little miffed. Right, okay. So in terms of watching it a second time round, and really for the purpose of a review where, you know, you and I will still watch movies that we love or have, you know, no knowledge of whatsoever. We, you know, we try to be quite, quite critical of it. And often let's be honest, Phil, if it's a movie that we've grown up with or love, we fail miserably in (laughs) distancing, (laughs) you know, emotion and sentimentality and, and critical review. But, you know, I'm actually glad that you don't seem to have this um, sort of sentimental attachment or nostalgic attachment to the film. So watching it now for the purpose of our review, let's break it up bit by bit. Overall, what were your thoughts on, on, on the story and the way that, the story is, you know, set up and, and the structure of the piece. Yeah, so look, I can definitely see what everyone else talks about. Mm. I can definitely see the bits coming together. And I very, very much thought this was a well-put-together piece. It, like, it, it deserves the title, The Citizen Kane <laughs> of Teen Movies. It is an extremely well-put-together piece. The dialogue is really good. When I say I saw it at the wrong time, hmm. from a story element, it was a really fun movie to watch. Really fun, really good, engaging movie to watch. Hmm. But I did sit there every now and then and just sort of go, come on. <laughs> you are, you're teenagers. This, this whole, the systems of school and the stereotypes that you're now breaking. And it, it all means, Weird FA once you're out into the real world. Once you're in the real world, you're not the athlete or the Mm. criminal. Your worker number uh, 201498. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know what, Phil? I think that's a really important and interesting point you make there because that is true. In school, it's a small pond, you know, and some some of us are just totally ignored anyway. But the real world is a huge pond where anyone passes you on the street, no one gives you a second look, nobody cares. However, the setting of this film, which is Shomer High School, and specifically the majority of this film is set in its library. But if we sort of put that aside and understand where these kids are, so they're in Illinois, in Chicago, but we don't Mm -hmm. see any of that. It's that we literally see their whole world which is a school. So whilst you're right, Phil, no one cares once you leave high school, but this isn't about that. This is about them right now and how they're feeling in this, in this world here. And and I think that's where I've missed out 
mm. being an adult watching this teen coming of age style mm. movie because it's akin to what people joke about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. When you're the teenager, you're rooting for him. You're going, yeah, <laughs> through the system and all that. When you're an adult, you're going, that poor principal, <laughs> that poor teacher, oh my God, the crap he has to go through just to stop this kid becoming a criminal mastermind. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and you do. Your, your, your perspectives really change. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, this is me not trying to talk it down either. I'm just, no, no. I have found it interesting when Kirsten talks about it, she talks about it from that memory of her mm. teenagers watching it with her teenage mates and being able to connect with things and be able to see it. I watch it and go, oh, that would have been nice to watch 20 years ago. Right. You know so I mean? even as somebody who has gone through high school and have, have had those issues, I, I imagine, because I imagine that a lot of us have yeah. a lot of these thoughts and existential crisis and, <laughs> and you know, trying to fit yeah, in yeah, yeah. and thinking about that. <laughs> even though you've watched this film as an adult, you know, the first time round, you didn't sort of have a sense of the I real world isn't like that, kids. But hang on, I remember way. feeling that way. I, I feel I connected in a very different way mm. because again, Kirsten talks about it and I feel you'd be able to talk about it in this sort of, you remember feeling the direct connection with the then and now. Yeah. Whereas for me, I found myself almost going into a re- reminiscing mm. sort of thing and I'd sit there and I'd go, Oh, I remember where, and it almost became a compare the pair. Yeah. Sort of thing, which, I think is a little bit different to be able to see yourself in those shoes. Mm. It was almost like, you know, and again, to be fair, I'm only 30. Yeah. So I know I'm talking like I'm some 90 year old, <laughs> uh, but it, it, sort of, it, it kind of felt like that. It felt like, you know, someone in the nineties looking at the world and going, Oh, things that have changed. And Oh, when I was young and I, <laughs> I found myself going, Oh, well, you know, yes, I do. I, I would have been, you know, a bit like this and a bit like that. Mm. But it was from that retrospective as opposed to that I can directly relate. Right. So I found it was really interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that is a really interesting perspective and an interesting take because the film itself, you know, wasn't a huge hit with critics. Critics did like it enough, mm. but it's not like it had received universal praise for what it was doing at the time. Um, that did not stop it from being a massive box office hit, mind you, because, you know, teenagers don't read reviews and yeah. don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's it. But in terms of the way the story is structured, you know, we've got the character introductions and we'll talk about the characters in a bit more depth in a moment. And then we've got the, you know, our, our five heroes and then we've got their antagonist, and essentially the film is this long therapy session almost with these mm. kids. And we've got assistant principal Vernon coming in every now and then to just sort of settle things down. And, and the way they relate to him individually and as a group uh, shows some camaraderie between them. Like they, even though these kids don't really get along for uh, for a significant chunk of the movie, they never mm. take his side over one of their own. And I find that quite mm. interesting. And I think that that sort of says a lot about the story structure and the story arc, because it's, it's, it's the journey for these kids really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, most certainly. 
Yeah. And also setting it in a library is an interesting choice because yes, it, it screams academia. <laughs> you know, we can all, we've all been yeah. to the school library. Uh, it's where you yeah. have to be the most behaved because it's a library. You need to be quiet yeah. and be respectful. Yeah. And it's sort of reiterating this esteem of learning, which because they're yeah. in detention, you know, they've misbehaved against learning, if you will, because they've done something that's yeah. taken them away from their learning and probably impacting somebody else's learning. Um, as we notice, for yeah. example, when we find out why Andrew is in there because he's impacted another student directly. So I found that a really interesting choice. Uh, and I, it's a beautiful set. Like it's a library. I'd love to study and it looks gorgeous. This structure in, <laughs> yeah. in the, in the middle, but, but I'm a nerd. I, you know, I love libraries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wouldn't uh, have been in detention. Uh, yeah. I, I would have been in heaven. I'd be like, hello. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, says, says me who got a lot of detentions in high school and no, it was never in a library. It was always in a classroom. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Not fun. But yeah, like overall, the choice of setting, Philip, what did you think? You know, they picked a library. They didn't pick a boring classroom. I mean, I guess it's a conscious choice because it gives, a, you know, a film that essentially is five people sitting down talking more freedom of movement and more space to play in, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so an audience can be a bit more captivated by what's happening. Uh, I don't know. That's just my initial thought about it. Yeah. So I, I feel with this, with what's going on with this film, it was a very good choice. As you say, it gives them that bit more freedom of movement, a bit more things to play with the environment around them. Mm. Because yeah, if you think about putting it in a, classroom a stale white room sort of thing something like that mm-hmm. that, that all classrooms are like that i'm just thinking we had a few in our school that were just white rooms essentially but yeah, it, it does <laughs> take away yeah yeah it does take away that character of the school itself yeah um, and, and takes away from the Again, I think it's a lot of shorthand, so mm. as as you've just pointed out, shorthand for the academia of the what you're meant to be here for. You're meant to be here for the the, the purpose of learning and study mm. and academic growth. Whereas if you're in a, just a white room, you might have been able to focus on the characters more. Mm. I'm not saying you had to. I'm just just sort of yeah. uh, postulating here, uh, and I'm stepping out of my knowledge zone a little bit here, but I've from memory, mm-hmm. 12 Angry Men, we did it back in high school, so I'm really yeah. at a stretch here. But uh, 12 Angry Men, I believe, is in a white room or like a, like a grey, like just a very empty room. The yeah. room. yeah, they're in the jewelry's and, room for the whole movie. You're right. And it's, um, there's yeah. not a lot of detail. It's been a while since I've seen no. the film. But, but yeah. The point of that means that you are focusing on the people and what they have to say. Yeah. That is the 100% focus. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, yes, while what everyone's going to say is important, etc., there is still that element of their surroundings. So, you know, what they have to say is 90% of the movie, 10% is what how they're interacting with the world around them. Yeah, and also because the world that they inhabit is a school and these characters are the way they are or the way that we as an audience and they as, as other characters see one another is dictated 
by the school. It's like how you said before, Philip, when you're out in the real world, you know, doing a nine to five, you're no longer the athlete. You might still wrestle like how Andrew does, or you might play basketball or football. That's fine. But no one's going to call you the athlete of the office. You know what I mean? That's just a pastime, right? That's it. Something you do for fitness. But here, yeah, it is their world. So I think, yeah, it is a smart choice setting it in the library. And also, it's not just a boring library. Like, you know, it's multi-leveled. Again, there's this beautiful statue in the middle, the way it's set out, the Mm. color palette. It just looks so gorgeous because I think it needs to depict the school as a character. So if we're going to focus it primarily in one space of the school, we need to say a lot about what this school is like, because the library really wouldn't be that much different to other learning areas. You know, it'd be quite similar. What is interesting is that at the beginning, we get, you know, these, these flashes of the school and they're not pristine like the library is right. You know, you've got junk everywhere. We see Bender's locker, which has the graffiti all over it and the prop noose. Uh, we get, we see flashes where there's rubbish, but even when they're running through the corridors, there's still a nice cleanliness to it, but it still feels like a lived in school. It feels like children do go yeah. there and trash the place because that's what kids do. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> But yeah, but it's like the setting of the library is the, is the ideal. Mm-hmm. And these kids aren't really living up to the expectations that are placed upon them. Yeah. So I wonder then, is there almost a juxtaposition between the reality of the school and the reality of the school life mm. versus this library on the weekend that is, as you say, the, the, the lofty goal, the what it is meant to be so that maybe they're trying to really juxtapose the two to show reality versus the dream as it were. Yeah, it very well could be. I mean, one thing I think that we know about school libraries as a general rule is they do tend to be the best kept spaces in a school for one, because you do have to be on the strictest and best behavior there because it's quiet. You muck around, you get noticed straight away. There's not much opportunity (laughs) to be, uh, you know, a delinquent in there, I suppose. And also the kids that choose to go there will either just go there because it's a safe space to just hang out and chat, or it could be there to actually study. So it feels like it is being used for its purpose. I mean, we, I think, get a sense that Brian would probably happily visit the library at lunchtime, Mm. (laughs) you know, um, and respect the space. There's a moment where you've got Bender who is playing with the catalogue. So just to update our younger listeners, that drawer with the cards that Bender is holding and picking up and shuffling and rearranging is the catalogue. It's where a record of all the books in the entire library are set, you know, either by by genre or alphabetically, um, you know, n- no computer system back then, kids. <laughs> now who sounds like a 90-year-old. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, so that's... I think even back in my day, we had computer systems. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. My day was catalogs like that. So, you know, just oh, wow. him... Yeah. 
shuffling these cards is an act of rebellion and disrespect to mm. the learning space. He then also has a moment where he's ripping the book up and even acknowledges it, you know, with some sarcasm <laughs> about disrespecting books. It's quite a funny <laughs> gag, I think, but it's moments like that. And the, the fact that these characters have props like that to play with just enforces I guess who they are and how they fit in this world or more significantly how they don't fit into it. So I think that the use of the library as the primary setting for this film is really clever because you do get those visual cues that you probably wouldn't get in a standard classroom or say like a detention hall. So, yeah, I just think the set is so exquisite. Most certainly. And I feel this is one of those times... Every now and then you'll see a set, and don't get me wrong, I know that everyone, everything is thought out in... Mm. No, that's not true. You get movies sometimes that you can tell they've just put it there because they've gone, oh, it's a lounge room. This is one of those movies where if you took away, if you did, you put it elsewhere, it would change the entire feel of the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I definitely agree that um, this setting works for the whole. Not just works, I I feel it's almost imperative that they had this. I I can't really see it working anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, And again, even when we see the kids in other elements of the school, for example, Mm. Bender is in the hall playing basketball there. Again, it's a fun little scene, but don't set, you wouldn't set the whole movie there. No, that's it. They're, they're little takeaways. They're little... Yeah. And, and to me, it's almost like any time they leave the library, that's their little rebellion or their little mm. freedom or their little... You know, there's, there's something going on. Yeah. But it always brings them back to that central point. Absolutely, because they're trying not to get caught <laughs> by Vernon. Yeah, um, that's it, that's it. <laughs> and do you know what's really good, though? is and i believe that this library that they're in is actually a set like it was filmed at a school but the library that we see is actually the hall of the school in real life ah. yeah but and because of you know its size so they've made it this library but i like that whenever they do venture off into other parts whether it is just running through the halls passing lockers it reminds you that you are in a school, like it all feels like a real school because I think sometimes you can forget if you're just in that one setting, hang on. It doesn't feel like a real school, but when you're just having moments like that, you really feel like you are at a genuine school, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think, I think that that's done really well. And I think you're right. Also Phil. you know, the, the little takeaways that, you know, whether doing this, that, or the other, you know, whether it's getting the joint or trying to distract Vernon or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's done all to advance the story. There's always payoffs for a particular reason. One of the other methods that John Hughes uses to advance a story is music. And I think Mm. music is really well placed here and it's done in such an interesting manner so i mean look the most iconic bit of music (laughs) in this film is is the theme song essentially which is don't you forget about me by simple minds it is absolutely absolutely gorgeous yeah that ending is iconic right and that fist bump in the air this triumph almost this rebellion is just so beautiful and it's iconic for a reason but when we think of it we can't help but think of Brian's narration and the song playing as well. 
Yeah. However, I feel like, and by all means, unless you want to speak more about the track by Simple Minds, a, a lot is said about it. <laughs> so I, I didn't yeah, really want yeah, to yeah. talk too much about it, except that it is the perfect song for this movie because it is used yeah, perfectly. Yeah. But there are flashes of music which are just done really well. The one that I love the most, the music cue that I love yeah. the most, is where Bendar and Vernon have that back and forth, have that argument. Mm. And then Bender leaves the library. Remember to the music, man. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know what? And no, I can't even tell you what it is exactly, but yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. this gorgeous visual and this music mm. screams. It kicks in as Bender yeah. shouts, fuck you. And I just love the <laughs> yeah. way that that music just erupts to reflect his anger. So whilst we're seeing him being angry, we can hear the expletive. It doesn't mask it completely. And we get, you know, Vernon's reaction <laughs> on the other side of the door. It's like he needs to calm himself down from this confrontation. He can't believe mm-hmm. he took it that far. But that music just, oh, it's just, it's just so evocative. And again, don't ask me what it is. I've got no idea what it is. Gorgeous. (laughs) I'm going to have to watch this again just for the music now. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just one example how music is just used so well. Of course, there's the famous dance montage (laughs) where they're dancing around the library. Originally supposed to be Molly Ringwald's character of Claire only but she was really nervous of, of feeling and looking foolish doing it. So everyone joined in. Oh, yeah, I that. yeah. And, and I think, I think the sequence is better for it because again, mm-hmm. you've got this sort of unity, especially when you see the boys grouped off dancing together, the girls grouped off dancing together because the boys don't always all get along. Rarely do they all get along. And the two girls yeah. don't really have much to say to one another that's pleasant until the yeah. very end so it's like just we we can we can then see you know it plants the seed it sets up the believability yeah. that yes they will get along at the end like the ending where they walk out together harmoniously makes mm. sense i suppose and, and i think it's just you know they're allowed to be kids they're, they're just sort of yeah know, footloose and fancy free i suppose but yeah but definitely philip next time you watch this and there will be a next time young man (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe pay just closer attention to the music and i know i definitely will i feel bad that i can't even tell you what any of the other tracks besides (laughs) simple minds don't you forget about me is (laughs) good music is one of two things Mm. either you remember it or you don't yeah and it really is if you if it's good music that you don't remember it you don't remember it because it was just so so subtle so intri- integrated yeah. that you forget that the music's actually there but you'd notice it if it was gone that or you absolutely remember it because it's there for those pivotal moments it's there for those Mm. big scenes those big moments yeah and it's chosen well 
the same can be said for bad music. You either yeah. remember bad music or you don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And I think for me, good music, and again, I say that the, the music in The Breakfast Club is really good. Uh, whilst I can't tell you the titles of the artists for most of them, I know how the music makes me feel and how yeah. the scene it is involved in makes me feel. So I don't feel bad for not knowing <laughs> the, the, the names or anything because I'm like, yeah, you know yeah. what? It does what it's supposed to do and it doesn't overshadow the scene. It's not overused. Sometimes music can be overused and it can sort of kill the moment. But I think every single note that is played in the breakfast club elevates the scenes. I think the way it's edited in, they're not full on tracks that go on for minutes. They're just sometimes really brief samples that'll go on for, you know, a few seconds. And I just think it's absolutely exquisite the way that it's used. It's so well edited, I think anyway. Oh, most certainly. But if, you know, the music accentuates the scenes, all our eyes are on these characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Cause it is most definitely a character driven film. One thing yeah. that's interesting is how the characters are all introduced being dropped off or walking to school. Mm. So I like the character introductions. The one that says the most from me though, is when we first meet Alison, who unlike other kids gets out from the back seat, not the front. And when mm. she goes to the front window to say goodbye or blow a kiss or whatever the car just speeds off before she can say or do anything and straight away you know what her home life is like i mean you get a sense of it with with all the other characters with the the talks with their with their parents and the fact that bender comes by himself but for me that just the way that allison gets dropped off is really heartbreaking i mean we can laugh i guess in the moment but I think it's heartbreaking retrospectively yeah, when you hear exactly. her story. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. It sets up everybody's stereotypes right then and there. Mm. You can tell from ev- just from everyone's entrance who they're being set up initially to be. Exactly. Yeah. What we're meant to think of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. I think what's really interesting is that there are all these visual cues and clues Mm. and yes dialogue is supported when you've got the back and forth with the kids and the parents but enough is depicted for us to understand based on our own social and cultural understandings of stereotypes who these kids are for example before we even see brian we get a shot of the family car the license plate e equals mc squared is what it reflects yeah, yeah. Tells us straight away. We, we could have gotten rid of, I reckon we could have gotten rid of most of the dialogue mm. and you'd still know what every kid was meant to be. Oh, absolutely. Because the visuals are so good. Oh, yeah, yeah. The costuming is gorgeous, isn't it, as well? Mm. I'm obsessed with Bender's outfit. I just think it's... <laughs> I yeah, Bender's no, outfit enough. just incredible. <laughs> but, yeah. you, know, you know, Phil, one of the things that's really interesting because you know we, we've said the word stereotypes a, a few times the breakfast club stands out a lot from teen movies i think overall but especially teen movies of the 1980s because yes we've got these you know visuals that give us stereotypes 
but John Hughes is a much better writer than that. And these kids are really archetypes as opposed to stereotypes. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. For me, yes, okay, there, there may be more archetypes than stereotypes, but to me, the fact that they start off as these stereotypes and evolve and change is part of the beauty of the writing. Oh, yeah, that absolutely. We're set up to think it's going to be this one thing and then twist and twist and it, 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 it's, it's all changed and it, it makes us go, oh, look, oh. Mm. all that sort of stuff yeah because that's also the point of yeah. of the film you know uh, uh, what eventually is the essay which is really a letter that brian writes on behalf of, yeah. uh, of yeah. the kids really enforcing there's a channel on youtube called renegade cut which does talk about movies and they've got a great video that they've put out that talks about the breakfast club archetypes versus stereotypes. Uh, So I just want to actually summarize some of the things that they point out and I'll have the link to the video in our show notes as well, because I really recommend anyone who's interested in the representations of different characters and the difference between archetypes and stereotypes to check it out. But some of the, the key points they make is that I guess with the breakfast club, we've got the kids who are hostile to one another based on stereotypical perceptions. So automatically Bender's a bully. So yes, he's not going to be impressed by a princess because she's stuck up. He thinks that the athlete is stupid because he's an athlete. And he thinks the brain is a loser because he's academic. It's the stereotypical perceptions they have one another that is the source of their hostility Uh, which I think is really interesting. And when we think about it, we've got John Bender is the bully. Claire is like the damsel in distress. Andrew's the hero because he'll always stand up for her. Alison is the outcast. It takes her about 25 minutes before we hear her say anything. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, and, and, and you know what's interesting? The first time she does actually speak, she does this sort of like aha type thing to Claire because Claire's been talking about something and Claire just turns around and says, shut up, <laughs> you know, as if she's been talking this whole time and is being really annoying. But she says one thing and it's not even a comprehensive word <laughs> and she's shut down straight away. And yeah, we've got Brian who is the dreamer and Brian who you know, longs for something else. He's got these high aspirations, but obviously he would love to be out of the little geek bubble, (laughs) I suppose, that he finds himself in. And so I think what really makes the kids in this film archetypes is because archetypes deviate from expectations. So, you know, we've got character depth in all of them. This is something that Brian points out at the very end in his letter to Vernon as well. Yeah, it's really significant, yeah. but we see that unfold before our eyes and their rejection of writing an essay about who they think they are is what mm. provides this personal growth because it has them reflecting. So they reject writing the essay, right? But they spend the whole film essentially addressing the question. Yeah. Who do you think you are? I mean, because stereotypes just oversimplify qualities and it doesn't deviate from those qualities. But we get a lot more than that in The Breakfast Club. So even though the characters have stereotypical qualities, their deviation from these qualities 
makes them archetypes. And I find that really interesting. So that's just some of the things that I got from Renegade Cut's video, which was really fascinating. And it just made me really appreciate the way that these archetypes are used in this movie. So speaking of the characters, Phil, what were your thoughts about these kids stuck in a Saturday detention? The casting is very good. The the actors are well suited for their role. With the actual characters themselves, I love how the character progression works. Mm -hmm. That They do start off as these misfits, as these people that essentially don't want anything to do with each other. And even though by the end they still sort of know that they've got that different world sort of vibe still happening, they have that respect for each other and they have that, that, that kinship, that friendship that's now evolved. And they've really gotten themselves a better understanding of each other's lives, which I really actually did enjoy that. And I enjoy how each of the characters not only grows individually as themselves but they it's almost like they're they're allowing themselves to grow i want to say uh, sort of in a meta sort of sense in society as it were they know how to now interact with each other thus they know how to interact with people as a whole and and they learn how to respect people who are different from themselves yeah it's interesting uh, because there are moments where you know, these kids seem to all hate their parents, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yep, blame the parents. It, like adults are the bad guys, you know, in this film. We've got Carl, the janitor, who is sympathetic. And, you know, the the kids don't think that highly of him. For example, he acknowledges Brian. Brian refuses to acknowledge him back because that's embarrassing because he's a janitor. And Bender makes fun of him. How does one become a janitor and so forth? And at the end... Yeah. Bender's got some, res- you know, you, you gather some respect for Carl because they do the whole yeah. see you next week <laughs> type thing, you know, like it, it, it's interesting, but also how like the kids relate to one another. It's, it's fascinating because as we said earlier, they're hostile to one another just based on their clicks and the perceptions that they yeah. have of one another, because a jock should never be friends with a node yeah. no way, you know, the jock should date, the popular girls and we can see that Andrew is automatically attracted to Claire. When they sit Mm. in the library, we see Claire sitting down in the front row and Andrew indicates permission to sit in the same row and she is fine. When we do a snap out, we, we have a wide shot and we can see where everyone is sitting. It's quite interesting because if we look at it, from left to right and front to back, we can see the school hierarchy in their positioning. So on the left-hand side of screen, we've got Claire and Andrew in the front row. Why wouldn't they be? She's a princess. She's going to be prom queen. She is popular. We know how schools feel about their star athletes. They are heroes and can do Mm. no wrong. And so Andrew's in the front row as well. Behind them is Bender. So whilst we could argue, yes, he's a loser, he's a bully, he's dismissed as a student, people know him. People might fear him. People might look up to him. He would be popular, if not necessarily respected, 
by the the popular girls and the jocks, everyone kind of knows Bender and his friends. Yeah. Regardless of what you think of them. So there is still that notoriety is popular. When we bounce to the right-hand side of the screen, we have Brian, who's not sitting at the front. He's more in the middle. (laughs) He's in the same row as Bender. And people might know who Brian is because he's a nerd. He's very academic. He's a part of all of these clubs, but he's not popular. In the very back row is Alison. No one knows who she is. No one acknowledges her. Even Vernon doesn't really care that if he addresses her, she doesn't answer back. He doesn't care. It's even acknowledged that she doesn't talk and Vernon doesn't, doesn't push it. He's like, yeah, kind of whatever. doesn't even try to get a response out of her for most of the time. She's not even sitting, looking at the front. She's to the side. So we get the high school structure. We get the hierarchy, the power positions of these kids as soon as they sit down and the dynamic between them unfolds throughout the film. So beautifully. I agree with you. I think the film is perfectly cast. Interestingly, Molly Ringwald uh, was approached to play Alison, our basket case. And she didn't want that. She wanted to play Claire, somebody who's a bit more prim and proper, you know, just Mm. as a bit of a breakaway from her other roles where yes, she's the star of John Hughes movies, but you know, she's, she's not the popular girl, if you will. So I think yeah. that, that that was quite interesting, particularly. Yeah, I absolutely love how th- these characters are cast, though. I love the aesthetics. We've got visual cues about who they are. Again, setting up these archetypes slash stereotypes, but then they deviate from these expectations. Andrew is in there for bullying, but he has that speech about why he's in there about really picking on this boy and and taping his buns together and just thinking about the ramifications for what this meant for the child. But let's be honest, he didn't get suspended. He didn't get expelled. Why would he? He's the, the, the hero athlete of the school. He gets a Saturday detention for it. Anyone else would have been kicked out at least for a few days. Emilio Estevez plays the role so well. And what I like about Estevez is that He's not the tallest of actors and he is shorter than Judd Nelson, but yet you still feel that Bender has this bit of fear because he knows that Andrew is stronger than him. Mm. And they have that altercation where, where Andrew uses his wrestling moves and pins Bender to the ground as well, because Bender is just continuously disrespectful, especially when it comes to Claire. Claire herself is someone who being a popular girl cares so much about what everyone thinks, but she does stand up for herself here because all of these people are below her. She almost says as much at the very end when a wonderful conversation happens. And this is one of the bits that I really like most about the breakfast club. This is where it feels quite real because there are some pushes out of the realm of, of believability in this movie, but look, that's okay. It's a fun team flick, right? But there's that discussion about Monday morning when we see each other, you know, in the halls, mm-hmm. in the yard, would we talk to each other? Are we actually going to be friends? They consider themselves friends now at the end of the film, but what about Monday morning? You know, mm-hmm. would Claire have the courage to acknowledge Brian in a really positive and friendly manner when all her friends, the popular girl click 
would laugh at her and she might lose that, that stock or that value that she has, or that even respect as shallow and superficial as it is, but it's what her clique would value. And, and that's not me just enforcing stereotypes. We get clues and cues and discussions about the type of friends that Claire has. We get that about all of these kids, but I love that Claire is honest. And she said, no, I would not acknowledge you. None of us would acknowledge one another. And Brian says, if any of you came up to me, I would acknowledge you. And yes, I would call you my friends. Alison says the exact same thing. It's the two characters who are in the bottom of this hierarchy that we get that visual cue from at the very beginning when they all sit down. And based on what we know about high school cliques, makes sense, right? that Alison and Brian are a part of unpopular groups or at least subcultures within the school. Claire says this, and she even says, of course you would say hi to us because you look up to us. And that's such an, there's something really aggressive about that line, but she doesn't say it from a horrible place. She's almost like crying saying it because it's this truth Mm about how everyone sees one another. It's like when you go to school, you find what group you're a part of, whether it's intentional or accidental, or you just fall into it because you get along with the people you get along with, right? You have shared interests or whatever. You know, you're not thinking about am I this or am I that or the other. You're just hanging out with people. But the, the ramifications are extreme in this film because we can see the damage that that does. And when you're forced to be with these people who are opposing and rival cliques, if you will, we can see why there is tension and it's beautifully performed. Mm. And there's resentment too. We see it with Bender as well, how much he resents what somebody who looks like who has the perfect life would be. He makes fun of Brian's home life. What a discussion with his parents might be like. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew sort of challenges him and Bender demonstrates that. He demonstrates what his home life is like and depicts this scene of abuse within his home. And we get clues as to why Bender is the way he is. Now we could call him this macho tough guy because he's got this attitude, this big chip on his shoulder. But my favorite scene involving Bender is when Vernon locks him in the cupboard or the closet, that small room, uh, something you would absolutely never do because you're losing your job. I'll tell you that right now. Right. (laughs) But Hey, eighties, different time, different place. But there's a moment when they have that really intense confrontation, Bender's on the floor, and Vernon makes this motion like he's about to hit him. And Bender flinches and recoils. And he really looks like a deer in headlights. He has these huge, beautiful eyes that just project fear. And we don't Mm. see Bender as this tough-talking, careless bully or criminal thug, whatever we can see that he is just a child. He's a teenager, yes, but he's still just a kid. And it's probably triggering some trauma that he has at home. It's little moments like this that tell us so much about these characters and that he isn't just sort of talking a big game. We We can see it all and we understand why he is such a joke to all of these characters. Except Alison. He doesn't really bother Alison, but why would he? She doesn't bother him. And so much so that Alison doesn't really bother anyone because she keeps to herself. 
But yeah, that again says a lot. You know, she has the most heartbreaking line when she talks about how her family, her parents ignore her. So suddenly Mm. that drop-off scene at the beginning of the movie isn't so funny anymore. It's information we already know, right? But we laugh at it at first. But when we see how it makes her feel in that gorgeous performance by Ali Sheedy, it just speaks volumes. So Mm. just the way that these gorgeous actors bring these characters to life depict these stereotypes, these archetypes, and just take them on this journey. And it's just summarized beautifully by Brian at the end. Yes, we see who we want to see based on our own perceptions and expectations, based on how they appear and how they behave and who they hang out with. In Alison's case, who she doesn't hang out with. But really, they're multidimensional characters and they all share traits with one another. And I, I just think that that message is reiterated and enforced throughout this movie. And I just think it's done so beautifully. And to be able to do it in the time frame that they do it as well. I know we don't often talk about the length of a movie, but John Hughes, I feel, is able to do something in the short amount of time that the movie really is that a lot of movies struggle to do in more time. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. There is something about being economical with the script and just getting to the point. And, you know, again, some could argue this movie really is too talky because it is very dialogue driven. But when it's that good, when the dialogue is that good, when the performances Mm. are that good, when you can draw from visuals, costuming, set, props, you're just engaged. It's interesting though, Phil, you talk about the runtime because I love the fact that this movie only just ticks over the 90 minute mark because one of my issue with movies these days, more contemporary movies is that they go on for far too long and seem to outstay their welcome. And it's interesting that this is a detention, but you want to hang around for more, (laughs) right? Um, But yeah, but no, I actually read that apparently the original vision of this movie was to be about an hour longer. And yeah, and some of those scenes were shot, some were never shot. And allegedly there is a VHS tape of the uncut longer version. And John Hughes was the only one who had a copy of that. But look, I'll be honest, I don't want John Hughes' estate to release that. Would I watch it? Absolutely. But really, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But, you know, yeah, I'd watch it. But really, Phil, I agree with you. I just think the runtime on this is just so perfect for the story it wants to tell. I feel it would drag if it went longer. Mm, yeah, that's it. That's it. It's funny. I was it just was a sort of a side thing of that. And, of course, to put my obligatory Star Wars anecdote in. <laughs> when I was watching Star Wars A New Hope with Kirsten, I was showing her for the first time. It gets to the part in the um, Death Star Trench run. Mm. Uh, the Star battle, and I'm sitting there, and I go. After a little while, I go, "Ah, oh, this must be the extended version. It's going far too long." And Kirsten turns around to me and says, "Oh, thank goodness! I thought this was dragging on for ages, and I just didn't want to say anything." <laughs> yeah, so like sometimes more is less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you know, when when you when you get it right, and I can appreciate it, you know, especially because Hughes wrote, directed, and co-produced the movie. Yeah, and I think he wrote the film in two days. You know, it it oh, could be what what what? Yes, yeah. Apparently, he wrote the film in two days. That's insane. Yeah. So he did allow actually, and 
you know, a testament to these actors for quite a bit of ad-libbing. And I think that shows oh, a lot yeah. of wonderful faith in your actors that they know their characters really well. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And so one thing that was ad-libbed was actually the scene where the kids reveal why they're in detention. Mm. Yeah. I absolutely love that. And what I love the most is when you look at why everyone else was in detention, it was for, you know, something to do with behavior and not following the rules. Alison is in there because she just had nothing better to do. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that says a lot because when Vernon goes into the tension, she's so insignificant. He doesn't even question why she's there. He doesn't even know who she is. And you'll always have like, you know, a role to tick off that people did attend their detentions. He doesn't even care to do that because it's like, I kind of know who everyone is in this, but yeah, it's just, there's just all these reiterations about how much of a loner Alison is. But yeah, I think that the, the time that, this cast is given to do what they do is absolutely spot on because they hand in such phenomenal work. And of course goes down to Hughes because he trusts his cast and they're working off a solid blueprint, which is his script. And he knows, he knows how to, this is why he's the king of teen movies. This is why he has the reputation that he has because he just gets teenagers so well and he casts really well i mean the actors themselves ranged in ages from actual teenagers to around mid-20s so still you know he had he got the age range right it wasn't like you know they're either still in high school or just out of it so like greece using 30 year olds exactly yeah but i mean hey at least they were consistent (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah so i mean look I've got nothing but praise for John Hughes and the way he captures the um, adolescence experience, if you will. But Philip, did you feel like the film did actually capture the adolescent experience well? Oh, look, definitely. And, and as much as I opened all this saying that, you know, I watched it at the wrong time, I could see 110% how people of teenage age mm. could look at that. And look, I'm sure there are adults who watch it for the first time as adults who have the same visceral reactions. Just myself, I personally have struggled to put myself back in a teenage uh, viewpoint. I definitely see how it does that. And I definitely see, yes, even though I'm sitting here watching as an adult, I feel if, if I didn't, think that it was the teenage experience. I wouldn't have been sitting there thinking to myself, oh, come on, pull your head in, you, you, <laughs> real life's about to hit you. Because yeah. it is. That's how I view teenagers quite often. I do sit there and go, you know, uh, you think it's bad now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait till you pay bills. <laughs> that's it, that's it. The food in the fridge isn't free. Um, exactly. So, but the fact that I was having that reaction, I think, shows that it really does hit the the teenage experience, and it really is that that sort of cross section of it that mm. that what people go through, because it is very, very, very much hits you viscerally in that sort of way. Yeah, I was in my early years of high school when I first watched this movie and not knowing really what, what it was about, had seen the commercials on TV, sat down on a Sunday night to watch it and I just could not believe what was unfolding before me. I just could 
relate so much to different elements of these characters. And yeah, it was just, yeah, no movie up until that point. Yes. I was what? 12, 13. Had, <laughs> yeah, but still, yeah. You know, had, had, had impacted me. And even by this age, Philip, I'm not going to lie. Even by the age of 12, 13, I had a lot of movies under my belt, right? I've been obsessed with movies yeah. for as far as I can remember. But The Breakfast yeah. Club is the film that made me love movies because it spoke to me at that age like no other film had. And I have to be honest, few films have ever since. Because, and I, yeah. you know, and I can, and this is why I can really appreciate where your point of view comes from and how you say you watched it at the wrong time. I absolutely get mm-hmm. that because I don't think it would have had the impact that it did if I watched it, say, in my 20s or 30s. I feel like I still would have liked yeah. it because there's so much that I can draw from this movie that's so well done. But that relatability and reaction to it, I don't think would have mm. happened any other time but yeah but i just to give you an idea about if the film captured the adolescent experience for me again i love this Mm -hmm. movie so much when i first saw it that it made me just love movies and i blame the breakfast club for the trajectory (laughs) that i have gone on because it made me want to tell stories so phil to give you an idea yeah when i was in year 11 in English class, we had a project and it was only a pass or fail, no other grade. And it was called a communication project. And all you had to do was to communicate something. So you could have done an oral presentation. You could have done a little booklet that you showed people and got feedback on. Yeah. No, this man here decided to write his own short film and direct it as well. Right. And you know what? It was about these group of kids in detention. <laughs> right? It was a total ripoff. Yeah, it was a total ripoff. Filmed in, in 1997 and called Sit Down and Shut Up. And it exists somewhere unedited <laughs> on VHS. And um, Philip, I'll have to show you the script one day. I'm sure it's horrible. I've not read it since. <laughs> but for me... Uh, we're, we're, we're producing it, man. We're going to produce it. Yeah. For me, it was a masterpiece at the time, but I have to say the breakfast club was still influential throughout my academic Mm. career. So when I did my master's thesis, I did a creative piece and it was a pilot TV episode set in a school. Now, while I was writing it, because I only did the first episode because I'm only allowed X amount of words, but while I was writing it, Mm. I had, the characters, the kids in certain situations. And quite a few of these kids got into trouble. Why? A, because it makes good television. And B, because in the back of my mind, I said, how am I going to get these kids in detention to hang out together for my detention episode? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How am I going to rip off the breakfast club yet again? Yeah, so I feel like it's it, look, mate. It's 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 uh, stayed with me. So I still feel it's <laughs> still relevant, and I think it's still quite relatable for anyone who's been to high school or currently going to high school. I think it's still relevant, but I also think, and this is actually from my observations. Now, do not get me wrong; I'm mm-hmm. not watching. I'm not. I'm not with these kids twenty four seven. But I'm watching my cousins kids and there just seems to be a lot less of the clicks Mm. with the kids coming up 
they still have friendships and stuff and they still have their groups, but I'm noticing that the groups are actually made up of these sort of groups. When you do online gaming, Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you have a tank, a healer, a controller, all the different sort of subclasses together mm-hmm. so that you can effectively work as a team. And that's almost what I'm seeing happening with kids these days coming up from primary school. Mm. Like I'm sure, sure high school's still got the old school clicks, but at the moment I'm seeing these kids come up from primary school and they're almost forming these groups that just have a bit of everything so that they, it's almost as if so that they can have mates that, you know how you say, you know, oh, I've got that mate that's good for so-and-so and another mate yeah. that's good to talk about this. But it's like they're trying to get those groups from the get-go. Well, that might be the way in primary school. And I don't have a lot of interaction with primary school students, but I've done some work in high schools and I've taught um, high school students. But I do have to say, Philip, when I first went in to observe a high school class, one of the things I noticed was the cliques. And it actually surprised me. I said, wow, you can actually tell which clique is which. You can see the popular girls you can see the cool boys the jocks you can see the nerds for lack of a better word you can see the quiet achievers you could see the disengaged quiet kids but in saying that whilst you could see the differentiated clicks there wasn't a hostility between them Mm. so they sort of stuck to themselves but whenever there had to be an interaction there, there didn't seem to be any sort of mean spiritedness about it. Now, look, this could yeah. be just that particular class I observed or, uh, yeah. you know, because the kids aren't always going to get along, even the most harmonious of classrooms. It's a different story when you get that same group in the, in the courtyard. Right. But yeah, but it's yeah, interesting that in primary school, it's you, you're not really observing that in high school. I do yeah. still see it, but definitely not the level of hostility that is depicted in the breakfast club. <laughs> Yeah, and definitely not the amount of hostility that I feel you and I potentially grew up with. Yeah. I I feel that you and I probably had a closer experience to the Breakfast Club's Mm. really defined cliques and and niches, etc. I just have a a feeling, and it could, could be well off base, it is literally sort of just watching from afar, but... um. Yeah, the feeling that maybe the next generation's sort of get doing away with a bit of that um, for a more communal sort of. Mm. Again, it'll come with its own problems. It'll probably come Always. with people not being able to really get along as well, maybe because they're not interested in the same stuff. Maybe yeah. there's communication issues. I don't know. There's always <laughs> a hierarchy. There's always power struggles. And I think in high school, you know, it's defined by the cliques that exist and the one that you are a part of. It's interesting where you are on the social ladder. I mean, mate, you just have a haircut and buy more expensive clothes or a name brand pair of shoes. You jump seven points (laughs) in the social scale, right? These days also nerds aren't as picked on as they used to be. No. Oh, well, I mean, it depends what type of nerd it is, though. I think if you're, a, you know, an academic nerd versus, say, like a gamer nerd or a movie nerd, 
you know, but I, I guess we're all nerds about something. Even the jocks are nerds about sport. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I think just at the end of the day, when you get to know people, you, you know, just see them for the humans that they are. Again, this is a message in the breakfast club. And I have to say, Phil, when I first started my master's degree in education, I walked into my classroom and at the back of the seminar hall was all of these jocks. Like, and you can, t- again, if you want to talk about perceptions and stereotypes, you can just tell by the way they were dressed. Yeah. And then towards the front, you just had the mixed group and you could tell us arty people as well. There were so few of us for once. <laughs> right. And I've just literally, yeah. the first thing I said to myself was like cringing on the inside. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by jocks. Right. Yeah. And about a month into my degree, I uh, was just, you know, chatting, sitting next to whoever. And, you know, I'd gotten to know everybody and I stopped and reflected on my own judgment, my own preconceived notions of my colleagues. And I just mm. had a little moment and I've just gone, I love my jocks. <laughs> They're such yeah, nice yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> They're so sweet. <laughs> This movie keeps coming back to me, mate, in different <laughs> iterations. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I think there's just, I don't know. Well, it's definitely relevant to me even as an adult decades, <laughs> decades after it was made and after I've seen it. But, you know, how does it fit today in terms of a movie? Because we've got some extreme sexist behaviour, especially when mm. it comes to Claire. So we see how... Andrew pursues her and there's a moment where Brian doesn't want to reveal that he's a virgin in front of Claire and Bender absolutely taunts her and Claire likes the bad boy. She Mm. is attracted to him, not Andrew who's clearly pursuing her. And we've got that, moment that you know raises eyebrows these days where bender is under the desk and he's looking at up claire's skirt so the treatment of women in this movie is quite interesting and i'm going to talk about allison in a second but phil i don't know the the way that claire sits in this movie problematic these days or is it still accurate in terms of a depiction about how teenage boys and teenage girls relate to one another it's so hard because it's like one of these things and i'm going to be very crass here for a second Mm -hmm. but it's like the idea of a parent saying to their daughter be careful what you wear and don't walk down an Mm. alleyway yeah can be perceived as super sexist and super Oh, well, women shouldn't have to and rah, rah, rah. Yeah. But it's the difference between, yes, in a perfect society, that shouldn't be a thing. But we don't live in a perfect society, so these are the precautions you need to take. And to me, it's a similar attitude. Mm. In the sense of we can sit there and say, oh, well, that's sexist and boys shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be portraying girls wanting the bad boy and do it. But it still happens. Mm. And so are we putting up a picture of what we want society to be 
or are we putting up a mirror and saying this is what it is? And I think it's a mirror. And I think yeah. it's still very relevant. I think so too. And I don't necessarily think it's ideal, but I feel like based on the information we have about Bender, about Claire, and even about Andrew, that dynamic, you know, that sort of love triangle, if you will, makes sense to me, especially for the age that these kids are. They're still trying to find their place in the world, especially because they are trying to break free from the perceptions and expectations, the school society, the small town they live in has imposed on them. So Mm. for again, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there is relevance there and yeah, is it problematic? Yes, it is. But I think we're putting a mature and adult lens on something that's happening in an, adolescent world where kids don't know better. And look, to be perfectly honest, you can preach all about being respectful and respectful relationships. And we should, because kids do need to know this, but you ain't going to get a 100% strike rate again, especially against somebody like Bender who clearly likes Claire and resents the fact that she is the way that she is and seems to have this perfect home life. And he does have expectations of her. And is so critical of her. For example, when she does the trick where she puts the lipstick in her cleavage and then applies that to her lips, everyone's impressed. But Bender actually judges her and almost slut shames her for it, for using her body in that way, even though he does nothing but objectify her and sexually harasses her throughout the film. I think, you know, scenes like that one where he's, you know, looking at her panties under the desk while she's protecting him from getting in trouble from Vernon mm. says so much about these characters, him especially. Oh, yeah. And so I, I, you know, I don't want to, again, it's not condoning behavior or anything like that, but I feel like it has this really strong purpose in terms of the, the story and where it needs to go and the characters and, and character it. development. Yeah. It's such a character-driven film that everything that's that it. is done serves the characters. Yeah, I think it's, again, it's the difference between something like, um, it's the difference between its purpose and intent. Yeah. If this was showing this behaviour and going, this is a good way to behave, or, oh, isn't that funny, ha, ha, ha. But it does have that little bit of malice and darkness it so i think that makes it okay because the audience clearly understands that oh this isn't quite right no for example in the movie the sandlot there's a scene where the kid pretends to have drowned to get the hot lifeguard to give him mouth to mouth and then as she does it he grabs her and kisses her everyone laughs and it's really funny and you look at that and you go, well, that to me hasn't aged well. That to me is not cool Mm. because that is not intended to show, oh, boys will be boys or kids, you know, kids will be kids or whatever. That is just straight up someone manipulating something to get a sexual favour. Scenes like that are prevalent in teen movies, especially throughout the 80s. Yeah. And so you're right. There's a lot of problematic scenes throughout this genre, um, even today, right? But I feel like the scenes that are in The Breakfast Club, again, 
survive better because of what they say about the characters and the dynamics. So interestingly, there was scenes involving a female faculty member. And I think she had like full frontal nudity, for example, but Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy really protested about that. And so it was left on the cutting room floor and not used. And I feel like the influence of the cast, especially the female cast members really kept the message of the movie on track. So it just wasn't a cheap gag or just a bit of TNA humor. Yeah. So you're right. I think the intent is really strong. Even if originally it's not John Hughes's intent, right? But at the end of the day, he is the director and he makes the final call and he's agreed with these decisions that are being made because they've served the story a lot better than what he's originally thought. The final product shows the intent of the production and of the story. And if we think about the other female student in this movie is portrayed, we've got Alison. So, I've, you know, there's discussion there about in terms of stereotypes, because the movie does have stereotypes. There are some stereotypical resolutions, if you will. And one of them is the makeover of Alison. So some people do see this as problematic that to get the, the handsome jock, Alison has to have her hair pulled back and have makeup on and show her beautiful face. She has to change to get the boy. However, I want to argue this. I actually don't see Alison's makeover as problematic or at least not in the sense that I often see it being brought up. And this is why Alison is never pursuing any of the boys. None of the boys are ever really pursuing her. Not as aggressively, say, as Bender and Andrew are pursuing Claire. Mm. And I think that Claire makes over Alison for a few reasons. First of all, they've gotten to know each other. So that initial reaction Mm. where Alison's like, aha, to Claire and, and Claire tells her to shut up, they've moved on beyond that. And Alison baits Claire a lot, especially when Claire is pressured to reveal whether she's a virgin or not. Like talk about being put under the pump. And Alison yeah. is one who really instigates that by saying that she, you know, had sex with her, with her counselor. And then when Claire reveals, she's not a virgin. Alison has one of the greatest lines, I think in cinematic history. And I'm not over-exaggerating this, Philip. But just the way she looks at Claire and says, I'm not an nymphomaniac, I'm a compulsive liar, I think is one of the greatest lies ever. (laughs) Claire doesn't think so, though, because of what that's meant for her, because Claire is being honest about herself. Alison has helped Claire push away from her facade, this facade of being this prim and proper princess. So I think that despite a lot of altercations between the two a genuine respect at least develops and so what i think the makeover does for allison is it tells her she doesn't have to hide herself anymore she is invisible to people and she's Mm. then accepted it and has made herself invisible by the baggy clothes by the limited dialogue so no one hears her by having her hair covering her face so no one sees her. And I think Claire says, 
you have the right to be seen because you are worthy mm-hmm. of that respect. And that's why the hair is pulled back. The makeup sort of simplified. And for that reason, I don't see the makeover as being problematic. It's not the typical ooh, ugly duckling turns into a beautiful swan and gets the, you know, the, the handsome hero trope. I don't buy that. I don't buy that argument. I think it's a lot yeah. deeper than that. Whether anything will happen with Alison and Andrew, I don't know. That's not the movie's point. But I feel like it's such a powerful moment for Alison because it's like you can now be seen and heard because you deserve it. You are worthy of that. And yeah. I think I actually think the makeover makes it's just more poignant than your typical teen movie Hollywood makeovers. Yeah. But yeah. But Phil, what, what did you think about the Allison character problematic in any way? Or what were you thinking? And to be perfectly honest, you bringing it up is the first time I've even thought it might be problematic. And even then I'm like, nah, I don't, <laughs> I don't see that as problematic. To me, viewing that as problematic mm. is the same as someone saying you're not a feminist if you want to be a stay-at-home mum. Yeah, right. It's the same as saying if you don't do a very specific thing, you're not a blank. It's only problematic if she's literally doing it to only get the boys and to change who she is and all that sort of shit, which she's not. Yeah, I agree. She's just not. She, she, it's only problematic if it's at the expense of who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, it's like the idea of someone being like, you know, well, you cover up your tattoos to go into the office. You're not being you. And it's like, well, no, I'm just adapting for this particular scenario, but I still get to show off my tattoos when I get home. You know, it's just... Yeah. It, it comes down to a, to me, it's like, let people be people. Let them be who mm. they are. And I think people who see it as a problem are reaching and are, have got very strict views on what they think feminism or people should be like it's like no if you're this then you should stay that because that's your true self it's like, mm. well, can't your true self try some other things and people are complex we're not and again this is the point of the film we're just we're just not one thing you know we are all of this and more and yeah and i mean you know one could say it is very hollywood to have them all pair up and so forth but you know and yes we are sticking to tropes because the node doesn't get any of the girls for example but again i don't think that that's the movie's point i think it's just showing that these these kids can get along because we've seen them get along ironically um if it was done today you'd probably find the nerd would have been hooked up with the, the uh, you know the, the basket case Um, and it would have been extremely fucking uh, uh, stereotypical. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. But, you know, again, The Breakfast Club is so much more than, I guess, what you might think it is on the surface. It has such a wonderful legacy. That movie poster is iconic, and it's a popular shot, I suppose, having a group shot, an ensemble cast sitting around each other like that, but there's just something so magical about The Breakfast Club and its poster because you can tell who each character is just based on that. Again, we've talked about the visuals and how strong they are and they're reinforced throughout this movie. But, yeah, look, even today, mate, it still graces a lot of greatest movies of all time lists. Empire Magazine, Mm -hmm. The New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, just to name a few. 
rate this movie highly and they absolutely should. Also something a bit fun there, Paul Gleason, who I know we haven't talked about a lot in terms of performance, but I think what a wonderful antagonist as Richard Vernon definitely embodies <laughs> the, uh, the strict and the mean teacher slash assistant principal. But you know what? He's got his moments of complexities as well. He's got his moments there. Yeah. And yeah. And you know, you can tell that I guess maybe teaching wasn't really the dream, the overall dream. It's something that provided him safety and comfort and resents any of the kids who I guess don't want that sort of safety and security. But yeah, I do have to give a shout out to Paul Gleason. He did a wonderful job in this movie. And yeah, if you will, one of the greatest teen movie villains of all time. (laughs) But I'm glad that he enjoys the legacy of The Breakfast Club. For those who have seen 2001's Not Another Teen Movie, he actually reprises his role in that film Mm. and has some wonderful banter with the kids in that where he says some of the exact same dialogue. Some of the dialogue is the same as the breakfast club, but I actually gets to swear to the kids, which is every teacher's dream (laughs) to a disobedient child. And um, that's a little fun moment. And also that they replicate quite a bit of the set, that beautiful library that we've talked so much about Mm -hmm. quite well. So I don't know whether you're a fan of parody movies or not. The scene with Paul Gleason in not another teen movie is definitely worth checking out. But Philip, we've come to the end of our detention, my friend, (laughs) your final thoughts and score out of five. Yeah, look, definitely not going to harp on any of the, you know, sort of at the wrong time because end of the day, it's still an amazing movie. It is still an amazing bit of artwork, brilliant dialogue. And so I do think this is one that honestly can be called timeless. Mm. I don't think it's going to age particularly poorly for the majority of it because no matter the technology, no matter the era, no matter what happens, in the foreseeable future, let's at least say, that teen experience is going to be the same. And I think because of that, this movie is going to be rediscovered by subsequent generations time and time again. And because of that timeless quality that it has, I'm going to give it five stars. Well, Phil, I think that that says a lot about a movie um, because you can still find a lot of wonderful things about it. I agree with you. I think that this movie is actually quite timeless. I think especially watching it as an adolescent, there is something you will get out of it. You can relate to being misunderstood, having expectations put upon you that you just can't live up to in terms of social or even academic. I mean, there's that beautiful moment when when Brian talks about how upset he was at not being able to get the elephant lamp to work and it comes up again and, you know, and and it's just heartbreaking for him because grades are, are everything for him. There's lots of moments like that throughout the breakfast club. For me, I am glad that I did see it at the age that I did see it and watching it again recently for the purpose of this review, it had been a long time between sittings And it was like revisiting old friends and I laughed so much. I have to admit, I don't remember it being 
that funny <laughs> that it was. <laughs> and I was so moved by it. And also this time around, I was really able to appreciate the performances and also the little nuances of the characters and the visual cues and music cues as well. This is really a solid piece of work. It's so significant for me and I owe the breakfast club so much, uh, especially because I love movies so much. And it's one of John Hughes's very best movies. And it's definitely one of my all time favorite movies. And I can't wait to sit in that gorgeous library of Shoma high school one more time to enjoy the breakfast club. It's five out of five mm. from me as well. <laughs> no surprises there though. <laughs> no surprises there. But that's okay. Absolutely. Surprise. Absolutely. Philip, surprise me though. I want to know what we're discussing next time. Yes. So this movie is one that I've actually only just seen Ooh. because it is one that has only just I'm out. Okay. It is a movie which I would say is this generation's Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. And this is Andy Samberg in 2020's Palm Springs. Oh, I've heard about this film, Philip. So somebody else recommended it to me and you've just seen it and really want to discuss it. So I'm excited to watch this. No pressure, mate. No pressure. Look, I will say this tiny thing. Yes. When I first was set out to see it, when I first saw it, I thought it was just going to be like, oh, here we go. Like mm-hmm. the quick back sort of movie. Mm-hmm. It is so good. Okay. Well, we've talked this whole podcast about people feeling the pressures of expectations. Pressure is on you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it is. So... Until the next time, mate, that we sit down to review a movie, I've been a Wayne Stellini. And I've been a Philip Hunting. And you've just experienced Fred Watch. Cheer music! Don't you forget about me. Don't you forget about me. And so forth and so on. That's it, Philip. It's detention for you, my friend. I'll see you on Saturday. (laughs) And... Blooper reel! And we've got a principal... You might still play wrestling or... No, you don't play wrestling, sorry. (laughs) So definitely, I I, I 100% agree that the... um, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, you're doing all right, yeah. Just say, I agree, the the setting (laughs) works for the film. Or whatever you want to say. No, it's good. Yeah, Yeah, Phil, so in in, in terms of the five kids of this film, let's have a chat about them one by one. We've got Andrew Clark, Mm -hmm. the athlete, played by Emilio Estevez. Your thoughts on him, mate? Give me a moment. I'm going to have to pause for a second and have a. That's okay. Do you, oh, do you not remember them? Oh, I'm just my brain's a mess right now, man. That's all right. Um, I watched it um Sunday night. Okay. And I'm just I don't know why, but I'm just really struggling. Not struggling with the movie. The movie is a concept. I'm fine. Got it. Great.
characters, I'm sitting here, uh, uh, while you've been chatting, I'm looking at the character's name and trying to go over all the things, and I'm just like, I can't You know what's really funny about that, Phil? Because they're just like, they're, the visual cues tell you exactly who each of them are, you poor thing. <laughs> exactly, it's shocking. No, it's funny though, but I watched it, um, I watched it last night as well, actually, so we were there technically watching it together, which was kind of nice. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it is Monday, isn't it? Yeah, today is Monday. Is it? Is it? Is it? I'm sending you a okay, virtual hug, I'm going to go quick Google and get them up. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to send you something? Um. Yeah, yeah send me something. That'd be good. Okay. I'm going to create you a visual cheat sheet. Thank you. That's okay. Bear with me. I mean, you've only seen the film twice as well, so I can expect you to <laughs> to know it. Yeah, no. Um, Kirsten showed it to me like one or two years ago, and I just really was like, "Oh yeah, that's a movie." And she, I wasn't cracked it, but she was just a bit missed because she was like, "Oh, this movie meant the world to me." Yeah. I'm like, "Oh." It does to a lot of people, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And it just, I just found myself going, oh, yeah, here's a movie. I can see why teenagers would really enjoy it. I probably should have seen this as a fucking teenager. <laughs> Same with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It was just a nice, fun movie. But for everyone else, it was like, no, it was a teen. It was the, the, the rebel, call, rebel without a cause. And it was <laughs> the... Uh, and I'm like, no, I think he's a bit of a shit, to be honest. <laughs> Oh, he absolutely is a bit of a shit, but I think that's why everybody likes him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I'm writing your cheat sheet now, man. Thank you. <sighs> help. <laughs> but yeah, look, I, I appreciate that you've been leading these things, man. I forget that I haven't been crash hot over the last couple. Oh, don't worry. It's well, it's my pick, so it needs. I need to lead it, don't I? <laughs> No, but you know what I mean. You know yeah, what I mean, Mike. Yeah. It's all good. Okay. Does that image help, Phil? It definitely helps. I'm still struggling with... Uh, it, it's hard because I know their characters, but I can only have... I've only got their stereotypes in my head, and I'm trying to remember how they evolve. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. Look, you just can keep it brief, and I can prompt you if I, if I need to. What you say might That'd just be, be perfect. Yeah. yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. Okay. Okay. Um, so, we, so I'll I'll just do that lead in. Um, yeah, sure. Start that fresh. So, Phil, speaking of... No, I won't say your name. So, speaking of the characters, let's have a look at them one by one. What were your thoughts on Andrew Clark, the athlete played by Emilio Estevez? Yeah, so... Um... Definitely, I mean, just looking at him, if you look at the <laughs> from a visual point of view, I think all the cast, I'll say quickly, mm. they have really hit the mark casting-wise, just visually. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I really enjoyed his... Oh, Wayne, what am I trying to say? Performance, traits. Yeah, exactly. And I've just realized I'm going to say that for fucking all of them. 
Okay. Do we not want to go with them one by one and just summarize and I can just talk about what I like we, about them one by one? Yeah, if we could do that. I'm so, so, so sorry. My brain is just not here today. That's okay. It's not like it's one of my favorite films. I know. That's why I'm pissed off. <laughs> it's just like he called my newborn baby ugly, Philip, but that's okay. <laughs> All babies are ugly. Look, I don't think all babies are ugly, but let's be honest, not all of them are cute. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Mind you, I think it's those babies that actually grow into being pretty, um, you know, pretty gorgeous humans. Mm-hmm. All righty. You know what it feels like for me right now? I'm sorry, I've just, super quickly. Do you know what my brain feels like right now? What's it feel like? It feels like I'm back in high school, ironically, mm. um, doing an exam that I know I've studied for, except the exam papers for the year above me. Right. Okay. It's so weird. It's like, I, I know I know what I'm trying to say, but my brain won't put the connections to the words. <laughs> And it's just not making any sense anymore. And I'm really pissed off at that. I'm so sorry. That's all good. Um, look, we've got a few more points to talk about, but um, we've we've sort of touched upon them already. So whilst I still bring them up, I, I don't think we'll be repeating ourselves. Um, so what I'll do now is I'll lead you in to um, the question about the characters. Yeah. <clears throat> It was the athlete that was, was it the, was it, was it Andrew or John who was the bully? Being a John was the bully. So you see uh, Bender is the criminal. So he's the bully. Yeah. Yeah. And what the hell was the athlete? Athlete? You could tell he had a thing for Claire and he always oh, stood, yeah. he always stood up for Claire um, and she, uh, you know, yeah, he was that thing that he really triggered Bendar. Um, you know, especially yeah. at the beginning when he says to him, um, "I flipped him around." Yeah, he's gone like you know when I flipped him around. Yeah, yeah. All right, sorry man. Okay. Are you ready? For, are you ready for me to prompt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prompt away. Okay. They all very much fit the roles. Um, they all very much fit the roles excellently. No, I'm overthinking. Let me just take a breath. Don't prompt me again. It's all good. I very much like um, how they all worked out, and, and, and I love how they they this. Oh, Wayne, what am mm. I doing? Are you just trying, trying to say to... how they go from the start to the end is basically okay. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's so, such a simple so, so are you trying to say initially that uh, all the characters are well cast and you like the character yeah. arc or the character journey? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I like, yeah. So the well cast, the well, the well cast, the superb cast and how they their characters evolve and their journey is well done. Oh, 
we could yeah, just I'm say. I'm hearing myself say the words. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, yeah, shit word. I know. I, <laughs> I, I know. I know. I, I can. I can. I can feel your frustration. Yeah. So probably. Um, okay, let me let, let me do this. Let me do this one more time, and then if it doesn't work, then I'm leaving. Okay. okay. If, it, if it doesn't um, work, if it doesn't work, you're fired. Okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> Even though by the end they're still to a degree that sort of, uh, 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 you know, they, they sort of know they're really not gonna do a hell of a lot with each other. Um, no, back up. I love the rapport that these 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 cast. Now I've got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've looked up, I've actually gone to the point now, I've just looked up a character analysis just to get myself back on track. Yeah. No, it's okay. Yeah, you, you'll have more insight than I do. <laughs> okay. Sorry, continue. No, that's okay. I'll, I'll just start that sentence again. And she even says, of course you would say hi to... Yeah, allegedly there is a VH. I don't think it's going to age particularly poorly for the majority of it because. That's okay. You can start from because. And this is 2020s rom. Sorry. This is 2020s rom com. Oh, let me start with that again because I want something better than that. I actually think I know where you're going with this. This movie was recommended to me the other day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, go for it. Build it up, mate. Build it up. (laughs) Extended scene. What have you been watching since our last podcast? I have been on tender hooks for The Mandalorian. Oh, who could blame you, mate? (laughs) It is so good. The Mandalorian is doing for me what episodes seven, eight, and nine should have. Yeah. <laughs> Making me excited for the lore of Star Wars again. Yeah. It's such an exquisite series, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Um, although one thing I've noticed, and I don't feel this is particularly spoilers, but the Disney franchise the Disney side of Star Wars doesn't seem to understand how Jedi work. Okay. And I mean that in the sense that they seem to have this big thing for the idea that everyone's forgotten what the Jedi are and who the Jedi are. Mm. And it's like episodes, you know, seven, eight, nine, everyone's always saying, oh, do they exist? Oh, the, the rumours, they're true. The Jedi, the Force, it's all true. Oh, this is... <laughs> if you think about it, it's like been 50 years top since the fall of the Jedi in episode three. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, it just... It, you don't forget. The galaxy doesn't forget. There are people alive <laughs> that would have been around during the Jedi, part of the Jedi. And... I was watching a video on YouTube about someone talking about it and they suggest that it's basically a single line from episode four that they reckon Disney have sort of grabbed hold of and misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. What line's that, when, Well, it's when Obi-Wan explains the Force and Jedi 
Luke, mm-hmm. who has heard nothing of it. And the thing is, um, George Lucas put that in to allow us, the audience, to know what's going on. Yeah. And then when he goes back to the prequels, it's explained away. The actual explanation of why Luke knows nothing about this stuff is that he very specifically is hidden from all those things. Well, I was going to say he's essentially, you know, the equivalent of a farm boy. So he's very, he leads a very sheltered life. And because we very eventually very learn good. about his backstory, he's purposely protected from all of that. So you're right. That makes sense. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Whereas you have someone like Han who later, you know, when Luke's being trained on the Millennium Falcon with uh, Obi-Wan, he sits there and goes, you know, uh, hokey, hokey magic and uh, old, old religions or whatever he says. Yeah, uh, have nothing against the blaster. Um, It's that shows that he knows all about his. He he remembers the Jedi. He knows about the Jedi. He just thinks they're uh, a wacky cult or religion or something. Yeah, and and again, that makes sense for Han to know it because he travels a lot and he mixes and mingles with a lot of people. He's heard stories, and you know, who knows what he's witnessed. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. so the idea that all of a sudden all these people just don't know about any of it. I mean, it's one thing to sit there and say that the Empire, you know, uh, tried to propaganda them out of existence, but there still would have been people old enough to remember and the Empire would have been doing all sorts. Of, and again, this is now getting into a little bit of backstory law and theory, but... You know, if you've got a a, a people, a race, a a cult, a religion or whatever, political persuasion, whatever that your dictatorial uh, uh, government is trying to get rid of, you're going to talk about them so people get rid of them. Yeah. Sit there and say, you know, how, you know, oh, no, they never existed. You're going to sit there and go, no, they do exist and they're evil and we've got to get rid of them. Hmm. I just can't, I struggle with Disney's fascination with this idea that nobody past the Battle of Endor knows what a Jedi is. <laughs> well, you know, Philip, if um, Disney are going to drop the ball or miss any minute detail, you, my friend, will be the first to notice. <laughs> <laughs> so they I can't... Got rid of, they got rid of our background guy. <laughs> Shame on Disney for digitally removing Gene's guy. He was a cult figure in the making and I am incredibly upset. I was waiting for the action figure, mate. That was going to be your next birthday gift. No no more blame Disney, (laughs) not me. I washed my hands of them. Um, yeah, no, no look, no, look mate, let, let's park this conversation because, uh, we, you know, when you get started, you get started and, <laughs> and, and also, and this is something that you and I have, have discussed behind the scenes a lot is that we are intending to do an epic run of Star Wars reviews. So yeah. I can't wait for that, but that's probably going to be quite a while down the track because I need to preserve my oh, strength certainly. just to, just to keep up with you. <laughs> on that note what have you been watching Wayne? yeah i've also been watching some tv mate and uh, whilst it's a series that does interest me um probably not to the extent that mandalorian interests you (laughs) 
<laughs> um, I've been watching a British reality fly on the wall type series called Educating. And it looks at these different schools. Each season follows a different school over the course of a year and essentially, you know, just sees how an average school year pans out. And anyone who remembers their schooling days well and anyone who works in school uh, will know that there's no such thing as an average day. So it's all the, the drama and the pressures and the tensions and the challenges that staff and students uh, face just to make sure that these kids have an education. And I have to say, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the British education system because it's nothing like yeah, Australia's uh, when you get into the senior oh, really? levels. But um, oh, wow. but yeah, no, it, it's fascinating. And I'm, you know, I've uh, got a slight background in education. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by it, particularly the behavior management side of things, because there's some really challenging kids there, some kids who need a lot of, a lot of attention. So that's been interesting to watch, you know, um, there's a lot of resources that go into one child, um, you know, if they've got um, some behavior issues or some settling in issues or learning difficulties uh, compared to the majority who seem to just sort of, um, you know, get along, with the system and with one another and so forth. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I'm absolutely binging educating at the moment. I'm, I'm really loving it. Yeah.